recap last week's study. We just did two verses last week and we talked about that whole idea of double honor, which we discussed is like payment of an elder, payment of a pastor. Um, it's really important, and we discussed it last week, why it's important for the church, why we honor an elder, honor elders in the church through payment. And when it's their full-time ministry or, or an honorarium that they are given, um, but these orders that are given to elders have to do with business of the church, um, specifically this double honor that we're talking about with the elders who are paid to be in a specific spot. Um, and remember, we went over, there's some kind of some qualifications for this, just like there is just being an elder. Like he's got to be leading well. You don't just pay a guy because he's on the elder board. He must be an elder who is leading well. He's got to fit all of the qualifications for being an elder. He's got to be preaching. He's got to be teaching. He's got to be essentially earning a reasonable wage. But where we get the honorarium from is they're not charging the church. It is the church who has decided to give them money for what they are doing. And we dug into that scripture that Paul uses to support the reference for um, muzzling the ox, right? We talked about this, don't muzzle the ox. Allow them to eat while they work. So that was Deuteronomy 25 we talked about. And we also discussed Luke 10. And we, we also had a little segue into why Luke 10 is important, because we look back at Scripture, Paul considers Luke's writing to be Scripture, which is pretty cool, right? So Paul, you know, the great apostle, the great evangelist, looks back at Luke, who is not an apostle, right? The Dr. Luke, who is writing a gospel and who then writes Acts, and he says, that is Scripture, which is amazing, right? It helps us to verify. We know that even in the first century, apostles knew what scripture was i mean we finished our study last week we learned a little about we learned a little bit about the humility of a well-paid pastor and we talked about ch spurgeon and we talked about his lifestyle and how he essentially died poor but if you do the equivalency of what he made in his lifetime he would have made like 26 and a half million dollars but he died without anything because as a elder as a pastor as a leader what did he use his money for the church because that is his calling that's the holy spirit has gifted him to do and he pours himself into her i mean ch spurgeon i don't know how much many of you read of literature but the prince of preachers right so in our time you might disagree with some of his theology was like the preacher of preachers he poured himself into making people understand the gospel by preaching long amazing sermons gave all of this away, poured all of it into his ministry. And what we also talked about is a church that loves their elders, also loves their brothers and sisters, so we need to be caring for each other well. It's, a, it's the whole package, not just some. You don't just get to pay your elder and then not love your brothers and sisters. It's a whole package. It all comes together. And we don't just pray for each other and feed one another. They support each other financially, so it's coming together. We've talked about this a bit in the past. Only when warranted, though. It's not, it's not socialism. It's not communism. It's for needs of the church. And we learned about widows. Remember, we talked about widows. And this also has to do with money as well, because we're talking about what the needs of the church are, specifically widows, women in the church whose husband has passed. We did that a couple of weeks ago. It all ties into this supporting a hardworking pastor. Getting the money together for the needs of the church, working with elders, right? Multiple elders, people in the church who give, 
of their own goodness, of their own heart, cheerfully bringing it together and then utilizing the money for the running of the church. So somebody who's kind of, we'll use air quotes, in charge or leading the church from a pulpit, widows who need it, needy people in the church, and the money is spent wisely. Wisely, not for lofty reasons. I won't get on a you know, different soapbox and talk about all the reasons people spend money poorly, but you already know. But this week we're going to continue to talk about pastors and we're going to move beyond making sure that they're paid well and look at some specific situations that pastors or elders, and I'll use the word interchangeably through this, um, some specific situations that you might see an elder in, how they are supposed to be handled in the church. So turn with me, if you will, go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll start in verse 19 today, and we'll finish the chapter out. So we're going to do six verses today. So starting in 19, 1 Timothy 5, and we're going to read through verse 25. And Paul writes this to Timothy. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin reprove in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his elect angels to observe these instructions without bias, doing nothing in partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. So also good works are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. <clears throat> I know some of you just heard you can drink wine at church. That's all you heard. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay? We won't drink wine here today, um, but we'll talk about why Timothy is able to drink some wine. So, but he's discussing how to deal with sin in the life of an elder. How do you deal with sinfulness in the church, deal with sinfulness in the life of an elder, a pastor? How does the church deal with that? How do we parse it out, right? And we have to be completely honest with ourselves. Um, pastors are humans, which means they are fallen people, which means they are sinful. Even the ones that are biblically qualified to lead, and you look at the biblical qualifications that we went over weeks ago and you go, wow, that's really hard to hold on to all of those things and keep them together at all one time. But that still does not mean that they're not sinful. So they're going to have things in their life that they wrestle with, that they deal with, that they have to go to God with regularly, that they are on their knees begging God, take this from me as I continue to try to be a good, honest pastor, a good, honest elder who is striving, right? Um, even the biblically qualified ones that teach and love a church can fall into sinfulness. We have to know how to deal with that. It's extremely important to the health of the church and more importantly than just the health of the church to be able to honor God that pastors are held accountable. Right? You can't just let a pastor wander into sin, wander into sinfulness, and just go, well, it's all right. They're our pastor. He's the guy we pay, so we're just going to leave him there. Well, the elder board decided it's okay that they're sinful. We're gonna, no, that's not the way it works. The Bible does not say that at all. <clears throat> but... What Paul is saying is we need to be careful to bring an accusation against them. So we don't just, you know, one person comes in and say, hey, I saw 
pastor so-and-so down at the local bar tuned up hitting on girls well we need some more evidence than that we need to dig in on this we need to make sure that we've got all the, all the evidence and we're dealing with it carefully because that's a it's a it's a big thing for a guy who's got a flock who's leading them loving them caring for them and they are a family to go to the you know we'll again use air quotes with like the family father and be like that guy's unqualified that's that's kind of a big deal so we need to be very careful so um paul says you know in verse 19 that there must be witnesses in the case of an accusation of an elder so somebody else to come alongside and say yes i've seen that hopefully an investigation soon but this isn't just a rule from Paul. So this is a biblical precept to have support from people when people fall into sin. Deuteronomy 19, during the law, is actually the first place that we see it. It gives, gives Israel rules for bringing charges against criminals. And Moses recorded clearly that a single witness just doesn't suffice. So we see the first case where you have to have somebody else there to corroborate, essentially. If you think about this, as you look back on it, it's like, where do you think American law comes from? If you don't think the country is founded on good Judeo-Christian ideas, like the whole idea is in a court of law in the United States, you are supposed to be judged by a jury of your peers, right? So people who can sit among you and go, yes, I find them guilty. Jesus gave instructions for how to deal with a brother that falls into sin as we look at Matthew 18. If anybody's ever looked at this, it's this idea that uh, a person comes along and says, I believe you are living in sin. And if they don't listen, you bring two witnesses with you. You bring two others along. And then the charges against the person in the church must be cared for well. So two or three people come along with the charge that you have and you decide together. And then that, it's a good one to read at some point, but there's actually a case where somebody from the church who is sinful is removed from the church at that point because they are walking in a manner that's not worthy of being a part of the body. It's like removing the bad apple from the basket. So we can see that it's important to have witnesses. You know, accusing a pastor who essentially, when we looked at said we talked about this last week, the Holy Spirit um, has empowered from Acts 20 is a serious gossip that must be contended with or considered. As you can imagine, the spiritual fitness really of a local congregation, whether it's ours or if it's one of a thousand people can get gutted if the pastor falls away. Now you see this in, in big churches. If you follow any of that stuff, you know, some mega church pastor will cheat on his wife and like the church will just split in half. It's like some people are like, oh, forgive him and let him stay. And then other people are like, no, we're trying to follow the biblical precept and it'll just tear things. So it can be bad. It can be really bad for, for a church. Um, but it also needs to be made clear that pastors are held accountable period. Like you should be held accountable as a believer for your sinfulness. A pastor should be held accountable for their sinfulness and maintaining their qualifications to be a pastor. Verse 20 out of the text we're reading says that sinful pastors should be reproved in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful. Those are pretty big words. So reproved, brought out in public and accused in front of everybody. Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty tough. To have, you imagine, like, I, I, mean, I would feel weird if one of you caught me in something egregious and then came to me with it and we came together here on a Sunday and all the men were basically like, this is what you've been doing. You've disqualified you. You're not welcome here anymore. That is tough. 
But there's a reason we do it, so that others will fear it. So that people will see, hey, we as a church take seriously who is here to lead the flock. It's important, right? Very important. So hopefully, and we've talked about this before as well, when we separate somebody from the church or disqualify them, why do we do it? What's, why are we doing this? The safety of the church first, but most importantly, we hope that they repent and return. Right? Because we should crave, as Christ does, that all turn to him. It's very important, it's repentance. Equally important that the church know the truth and they're able to make clear decisions about their, their own leadership there. So there's often, like I said, bad fallout from these situations, but it's necessary to handle them lovingly, you know, biblically, early, because you don't want to let something rot the church out, and very honestly. And I'll just talk to you for a minute, but part of my unfortunate growth as a believer is sitting underneath a couple of pastors who've fallen into this, and it's difficult. It's really hard. Um, And it causes division. Um, Things that have been brought against them, and things... Unfortunately, that if they had been handled early, usually can be cared for well, and then they don't get out of control, right? When you let sinfulness just, it's just like your own life. Right? If you continue to eat junk food, your body will continue to break down. If you continue to let an elder you know, live a sinful lifestyle, it will just continue to get worse and worse, and the church will break down. The pulpit will break down. It's very important that we care for these things early. Er, early excuse me. <clears throat> And I'll just talk to you in a case a few years ago um, for us, for Carol and I, you know, we're in a church. Actually, Wayne and I were talking about it this morning, but we're, we were sitting in a church where we found out that that pastor was essentially stealing um, sermons online and then just reading them, um, which I think is about 30% of the Ten Commandments, right? So it's, it's stealing, it's lying, and it's bearing false witness, which are all pretty egregious, and I think that would disqualify you from being an elder. Um, but anyway, we were sitting in this church, and um, he's pawning these things off as his own. He's telling the congregation that he did some of the work on his own. It's not original work, and I brought him that evidence. I just said, hey, I know that you're doing this, and uh, you need to go to the men in the church, your leadership, and tell them what you're doing. Um, because this was a Baptist church, it didn't have elders, it had deacons. I think that's a whole other problem, but not for today. But uh, he didn't. He didn't go to them at all. And then uh, essentially I brought it to them, and they had a meeting, and they decided to do nothing about it. So I got a phone call on a Sunday night from the lead deacon who said, hey, you're not going to be happy with our decision, but we've decided to forgive him and let him move on. And they'd known that he'd been doing it for years. I said, I appreciate the phone call. I love you, brother. We will not be returning to the church. And he got kind of upset. Well, why, why wouldn't you come back? Like, we did the thing. We did the process. And I said, yeah, but he's disqualified himself, and you're asking me to bring my family to sit underneath a man who's disqualified himself from the eldership. So if you're seeing where, where I'm going with this, men, like, you don't let your family sit underneath unqualified leadership. You just don't do it, Right? So I was told that they'd known this guy for years and they'd known that he'd taken other pastor's sermons, which disappointed me. They knew that his family was a mess. Like, come on. So why did you hire hire him if you knew his family was a mess? But they don't want to upset the ship. The church is happy. Everybody shakes hands and smiles at each other when everybody comes in. So we don't want to turn things over. Um, Anyway, we left, right? 
They never asked him to repent. They never asked him to do anything. They just continued to let him go. Um, but I went to his office and I, I said, look, I, it's the board that decides Carol and the kids and I will not be back. And this is why I still love you, but you've disqualified yourself as a pastor. And I'm going to ask you personally if you'll just step down. And he said, no, I won't step down. I said, so you know you're disqualified, but you will not step down from leading the people in this church. Although biblically you're disqualified, what does that say? He was like, it's my job. So they're paying him. It's his job. It's no longer a calling. It's no longer about the bride of Christ. Remember we talked about the bride of Christ, how important that is? What if somebody was messing with your wife, painting her up in the makeup, putting on a miniskirt, and sending her out? You'd be mad. You don't think God is mad that these guys are taking advantage of the church like that? So anyway, we left. Um, Anyway, so that's what that looks like. We have to be able as a church to see sinfulness in a pastor and hold them accountable for it. But anyway, you've been able to see from what we've been studying that God wants this order. He wants order in the church. He wants the church to run well, right? So he gave the church, the body of Christ, to Christ. He gives the church to him. But it's for us to love and serve one another. And we honor him through it by having order in it. Not letting things get out of control. If you bought apples from the store today and set them on your counter and one of them sitting in the top was rotten and on flies on it and you left it sitting there, you would be a moron. Okay? You don't have to be a fruitologist to know that when you take the rotten fruit out, the other fruit doesn't get hurt. It's very simple. So let's do that here for and with each other to make sure we are all safe. That's what we do. He wants order in the church. He wants the body of Christ to have sound leadership. But we're sinful people, so guess what? We mess it up. That's what we do. That's what we do. People don't want to cause conflict. They don't want to ruin the experience. And they're weak. Men are weak in America today, probably in the world, but I know this place best. Men are weak, and they care more about how they feel than upsetting the apple cart. And that's just the reality. They'd rather keep smiling and shaking hands in a sinful, rotten place than walk inside and say, this is out of line. They won't do it. If you love your wife and you love your kids, you'll have them in a sound church and you'll not resolve to sitting underneath weak, sinful pastors who are false teachers. It's just that simple. It's your responsibility to guard your family and by doing so, you guard the church. When you guard your family, you guard the church. And Paul takes this seriously as well. That's why he says what he does in verse 21, right? Paul charges Timothy in verse 21. He charges him. You will do this. And through this message to all pastors to observe all these instructions, observe the instructions about the care of the body of Christ, the care for the church. He doesn't say, hey, you should do some of this stuff. He says, I charge you to do these things. It's very important to him. And here's the funny thing. When he charges him, if you go back and read this thing, he charges them in the presence of God, Christ Jesus, and his elect angels, which is like a really weird thing that we haven't heard him say before in all the epistles that we've read. Why, why in, in front of God and then Christ Jesus and then in front of the elect angels? Like, why do they get to be a witness to his charging you? And I'm not sure exactly why he leaves the Holy Spirit out of this thing, but... 
I think he covers it under God because we worship a triune God. But I think we can surmise that it's the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer. So when he's talking about the church, the Holy Spirit's already involved, right? But when it comes to the church specifically, it is God the Father who gave the church to Christ Jesus, the bride, and the elect angels are there as a witness. In the heavenlies, it becomes the whole heavenly council. God on the throne, Jesus Christ seated at his right hand, in the whole heavenly council of angels who are elect. And he talks about believers as being elect as well. When we get to Romans, we'll talk about this a lot. The elect are those who are in him, who Christ has chosen from the foundation of time to be in him. They all look at him and he says, in front of that whole heavenly council, do this for the church. He doesn't say it because it's going to make Paul happy, make Peter happy, make Timothy happy. He says, do it because that council is watching you. So do angels play a role in the church then? If he says, in front of all those angels, <laughs> the, uh, do they play some sort of role in this? As agents of God, agents of God to do his will. Here's some th interesting thing about angels. This has nothing to do with this study, but since we bring up angels, I just want to tell you how important it is that these angels are witnessing to this. Did you know that angels rejoice when a sinner is saved? The day that you were saved, the angels rejoiced. Luke 15.10. Can you imagine? In heaven, the day that you were saved, all of the angels, the multitude Millions, billions, who knows how many, rejoiced, cried out to God, and were like, another one is in him. All of the angels rejoiced. That's how important you are to him. We know that an angel reports to God on your behalf. There's a little secular thing to that, right? We call it the guardian angel thing. That's a little different. But a, a, an angel reports to God on your behalf. Go to Matthew 18.10 to read about that. It is amazing that if you are hurt, an angel... It, it, and here's the cool thing. Does God need an angel to come to him to report about something in your life? <laughs> nope. Why? Because he is omniscient, right? So he knows everything that's going on. That's very good, though. It's very close. So he's omniscient. So he knows it already happened. But it's like God loves you so much that not only does he know what's going on, but he built a creature who's going to also see what's going on and then come to him and just say, Father, this is what's going on. Right? It's part of that counsel. It's so amazing that he loves us so much. Psalm 91 says angels can guard people. Hebrews 13 tells us that you might be entertaining angels in your home when you show hospitality to a stranger. So when Paul says in front of this heavenly council, in front of all these angels, these angels are a part of the witnessing crew there to make sure we're guarding the church well. They work for the Lord as part of his redemptive plan, and Paul is showing us here that the order of the church and its leadership are very important as he charges Timothy, therefore charging pastors, elders, for the care of the church and the witness of the entire heavenly council. So one of the things that confuses me, frankly, about modern liberal churches is that we see clearly that Paul is charging Timothy. He's telling him, you will do, like a legal term, you will do this. Charging the church to be obedient to his words, as we see in Timothy. 
as they're coming with the authority, because remember, Paul is an apostle, big A apostle, so he's been given the authority by Christ Jesus through the Father. So he comes with that authority. I'm charging the church. And then many churches set aside those charges and try to argue them away. This is, this is a really interesting one. In Timothy, we've read, like, what are the quali qualifications of a pastor? Paul's charging them, do this, because all of the heavenly authorities said, do this. And then right down the street here, we have a church that just goes, ah, eh, the pastor, it can be whatever it wants. You can feel however you want. You can be whoever you want. It's just whoever decides they want to step up today. And then we'll, we'll also allow sinfulness to be a you know, rife part of the crew. Well, which is interesting because it stands right in the face of the scripture here, which says, no, I'm charging you to do this. It's not a request. It is an order. Paul's very serious about the safeguarding of the church, and that's what we get from this. It's, this is serious business. This is people's lives. Somebody in this group will have a major life crisis at some point within the next couple of years. Does anybody think I'm wrong? I've had them with my wife. Somebody in your family close to you will die. Somebody will be on the cusp of divorce. Somebody's child will get hurt or sick. And I'm not trying to scare you, but it's, that's, that's life. That's the world we live in. You'll have a major life crisis. How if we are broken and sinful and can't care for each other and hold the pastorate accountable and hold the people accountable, how can we love each other well? Because if we don't care about the church, then we don't care about its people. Because the church is us, the bride, right? He's very serious. So we'll shift a little bit and we'll talk about making the elders, laying hands on them. And Paul says this, he doesn't want elders to have hands laid on them early without time to inspect their lives and see that they're one, qualified, and that they're two, have a history of being a loving, caring person, able to teach, able to pe preach, able to admonish, able to reprove. Very important that these people are there and qualified. Whether it be ordaining a pastor or maybe a pastor who's fallen into sin and is coming back to the church, don't lay hands on them too early. Inspect them. Make sure, it's, make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. We must be careful in allowing men access to the flock. Right? When you talk about the word flock, you talk about a shepherd. I mean, if a shepherd in the first century Jerusalem was playing on his cell phone and the sheep wandered away... It doesn't do any good for the sheep. Okay? He'd be playing on a tablet. Anyway. That was good, right? So what really brings emphasis to this, though, is that Paul is saying that the sinfulness that enters the church through a hastily chosen pastor or a hastily forgiven pastor or elder returned to the flock is that the ones who laid hands on him, they get to take part in his sin. What he's really saying is, hey, you laid hands on this guy and let him in. That's, that's your fault. You did this. You allowed it to happen. You were not careful enough. You didn't take the time. You were not prayerful enough. So very important. And we realize that we're dealing with sinful men. We talked about this, bless you. Men who are, not, bless you, not just sinners, but will sin. Men will sin. Pastors will sin. But as we've seen from our studies throughout the entire letter, first letter to Timothy, there's a huge responsibility in being an elder, right? The qualifications are very high. We went, we went through these already. And when sin is overlooked or qualifications are dismissed, those are allowed 
those elders, access to the people in the church are going to share in that transgression. Right? So if a shepherd has a flock of sheep and a person he doesn't know comes along and says, take a lunch break and I'll watch your sheep. And he doesn't know who it is and he just leads the sheep astray. Well, whose fault is it? It's the shepherd's fault for letting somebody lead the sheep astray. Now you say by proxy, it's for the men, it's your fault as well. It's interesting that Paul would put this very personal part in here. He advises Timothy to add wine to his diet. Did you notice that we talked about that at the beginning? Okay. Most of you heard, I can drink wine. <laughs> so Paul tells him to add wine to his diet. And there's probably, maybe, a couple of reasons for it. We'll talk about those things. But it, Timothy has some frequent ailments in his life that he's trying to deal with. And Paul says, just add some wine. It's going to help you. Um, this could be due to numerous things. And I doubt that Timothy had a drinking problem. And that's why he stopped drinking wine. Because had he had a drinking problem he wouldn't have been qualified to be a pastor in the first place. So it was probably not that. Um, but Timothy may have had maybe alcoholics around him. And he was just saying, I'm going to abstain from that so that I'm a good example to them. It's a good reason to, right? When you have people in your life who can't deal with things, you don't want to be the person who makes that thing worse. Um, he may have abstained to not lead other people astray. So either... The, and maybe the water was not very clean there. We know this is one of the problems in, you know, back then um, where the water wasn't very clean. So they leaned on wine a little bit to have something to drink. And maybe the water wasn't clean enough to keep his stomach from being good. We all, if you've traveled a little bit, you get a little traveler sickness. It's a thing. Um, but what we do know is that Paul brings this up in the midst about talking about sinfulness, which is kind of, it's kind of weird. Like you're talking about sinfulness of elders. And then you go ahead and tell Timothy, go ahead and drink some wine. <laughs> well, it seems kind of out of play. And if we're having a deep discussion about something, I just go, hey, let's bust out a bottle of wine. Uh, some of you are going to be like, yes. And then, but you'll be like, why? It seems very out of place. But it leads me to believe that Timothy was concerned with his impression on the church. Because we're dealing with sinfulness, Timothy was concerned about being a disqualified, sinful pastor, elder for the church, and he was concerned with how it looked, how it appeared, how people perceived him, or maybe the people around him with this possible drinking problem. He doesn't want people to believe that sinfulness is acceptable, especially from him, who's their pastor. There's two other things we can take away from Paul talking to Timothy about this in the midst of talking about sinfulness. This is just about wine itself. Alcohol consumption itself is not sinful. Period. I know there's a bunch of weirdo little uh, radical churches out there that'll just tell you, um, you cannot drink any alcohol. It's you know, wicked liquor. It's just not true. It, first century wine was used regularly. Not all the water was good. Um, one of the things... Um, that I've heard actually from a pulpit as a pastor teach that, well, the wine back then was not alcoholic. It didn't have any alcohol. That is an absolute historic lie. As a matter of fact, the wine back then may have had more alcohol in it than wine today. There's no limits on the wine. You could ferment it as long as you wanted to. The fermentation process helps cleansing. Now, one of the things they would do is add water to it, probably because it was so alcoholic, but it, it allowed the great drink 
to not rot when it was fermented. They could keep it for a long period of time. Add a little water to it, it's easier on your stomach, but it definitely had alcohol in it. So it's, it's not necessarily bad. Now it's bad to be a drunkard, period. Not bad to drink wine. Number two, Paul is, uh, excuse me, Timothy is sick. Why didn't Paul just pray for him to be healed? Why didn't Timothy just pray to be healed? Why don't we see some big miraculous healing where Paul comes and lays hands on his tummy and all of a sudden he's better? Because this is what the charismatics would have you believe. Well, if he had enough faith, he just would have been healed. That's actually a thing. If you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. Well, let's be honest with ourselves here. Paul, the greatest evangelist, the first century, who reached all these people, knew that there were practical ways to be healed and he could just do that. He knew that it would work. He doesn't need a miraculous healing. He doesn't need God to step in. Paul's a believer. Timothy's a believer. He's leading a church. He doesn't need some grandiose, miraculous thing to show up to prove to Timothy that God is real. Just add some wine. I know you're a believer. And then move smartly and be a good pastor. All right, so let's move on. Move on to the end of the chapter, and it helps us understand why laying hands on elders early can be problematic, and then we'll finish up. We're talking about hidden sin, okay? You know that some people wear their sin on their sleeve. We've all been around people who are just openly sinful people. Whether they know God or don't know God, they just, they exist sinfully, willfully sinful, right? And they're easy to pick out. It's easy to pick them out. But what's more difficult is those who hide their sin, right? They appear to be good, righteous people, yet their sin is under the skin, if you will. Um, and you'll often see this in the fall of a pastor or an elder, if you've ever seen something like that, where this guy will be leading a church for years, and then he'll, I don't know, just as an example, you'll find out, well, he had a, a relationship he fell into that was uh, uh, into infidelity. He's been cheating on his wife. And so, well, how long has this been going on? Well, he's been cheating with the church secretary for seven years. And you're head, you're like, how has he been cheating for seven years? Well, because they've been hiding that sin for years and years and years, and now finally someone has found out or just finally burdened him. Um, and they often have to do with infidelity or money, right? The two things that crush even marriages are sex and dough. I mean, the things that ruin the marriage are also the things that ruin the church, right? Fair enough. Likewise, good works can be evident and quickly reveal an elder who's walking closely with the Lord, but those who are hiding their sin. So we just need to be careful in this because if their transgressions are not revealed in the present, we know their transgressions are going to be revealed in eternity because God knows their, transgress their transgressions and when they are judged, God will know what's going on. All right, so we're going to wrap this up today. <clears throat> In the last two studies, we've learned a lot about elders. We still have one chapter to go to finish up 1 Timothy 6, but just bear with me. I'm going to give you a big block of things we looked at. Last two studies, we learned a lot about elders and about pastors, right? The same person, elders, pastors. We discussed them being worthy of double honor, how a good pastor will labor tirelessly for his flock. He'll preach and teach. He'll work for the people that he loves. He should be careful to charge him with sin. But if, he, if it needs to happen, it's done with witnesses, and then that business of the pulpit is handled. They are set aside if need be. They are punished if need be. 
But it, it, it is important that pastors are held accountable, especially by the other elders. And uh, that we should not have pastors who have been easily put into a position of leadership over the flock. So that's kind of the, the nutshell of what we've gone over. So I finished this study and I'm rereading and then Sadie and I are having a discussion last night. And I just wanted to talk to you about this because it just, it, brought, it kind of brought it together uh, for me as I was looking through this. So Sadie and I are talking about the music that she's going to play when we wrap up here as we lift our voices to the Lord. And we're going through this music and, and, and Sadie has been um, careful to pick music that doesn't come out of places that we disagree with their theology because there's a lot of great music that comes out of a lot of horrible places. So Sadie, if you don't know, a lot of the conversations we've had before Sundays are, I've looked at this song, have you heard of this person? Do you know where they come from? And to give it to her, especially for her age, she has been extremely careful to stand in front of you to play a song that comes from a place where she is not a willing participant in something that is ungodly. So. Uh, it makes me proud as a dad to know that she's considered that. Um, and she, you pat her on the back for this, has, give her kudos, has been very, very careful to make sure she's not leading anybody astray. But part of our conversation was all about, not just that specifically, but how so much of the good music that we have listened to in the past comes from so many bad places. And one of the songs was from Hillsong last night, but we didn't know it was from Hillsong because it was rewritten by some other guy and we loved that guy's version and that guy seemed pretty good, but then we we're Googling the song and we look at it and it's from the early 90s and it's written by some lady at Hillsong. Who's written, and I'm like, oh my gosh, seriously? So we talk about it and she's like, dad, why is all this great music from these garbage places? <clears throat> And I thought, isn't that kind of the same thing that we're talking about? Like we see things that we like and we see things that are good, but really down on the inside, they're just, they're not good for us. And that's the way the contemporary church treats its pulpit. They don't care if it's right and good and true, if it's good for you or not, if it's theologically sound. They don't care if it's doctrinally sound. They'll just put it out there because it sounds good. It's entertaining. The flashing lights are on. The smoke machine is going, the laser light show is on, and people will sit there and be entertained by somebody, and they care not whether or not they're giving them sound doctrine that'll feed their soul from the Word of God. And it like hit me last night. We're talking about music, and I'm like, there's nothing different from the music than there is from the pulpit. It is all the same. We will go be entertained and not learn, because it's just easy. It feels good. You turn on the radio and that Hillsong song comes on, oh, the song breathes. If I heard that song sung in the backseat of my car one more time, like I'll bet I heard that song four million times when my kids were young. It's a beautiful, gorgeous, amazing song that seems to glorify God. It comes from a place and a church that does not glorify God. We need to be able to hold this pulpit, if you will, to a high biblical standard and each other as well. But church, if I could close with this for you, we need to do better as a church. We all need to do better. And I know it's hard to hear that. Like, well, what are we doing wrong? How can we do better? Remember when Paul went to Philippi, what did he say? Hey, you're doing a great job, but I want you to love each other what? More and more. 
love each other more and more. Continue to do well. Continue to grow. Continue to love. Continue to serve. You're doing a great job. Do it better because your neighbors are going to see you and they're going to go in. We need to do better. Men, look, you would never send your kids to a school if you knew it was a dangerous place. You would never send your kids to a daycare if they knew you were teaching your kids some crazy wazoo junk. But you'll let your family sit in a church and under pastors and listen to music and whatever that is just garbage and you'll completely ignore the biblical pretext for pastoring of a church. Where's our standard? We have to do better. Do we love our God is really the big question. Do we really love him because of what he did for us? When we say, oh, I love, yeah, I love Jesus. He's my homeboy. It's one of the hardest things I can hear in my life because he is not your homeboy. He is your king who is not your homeboy. Do we love him for what he did laying his life down for us? Do we love his bride? Do we love, his, do we love this? When we come to the White's house at 10 o'clock, on a Sunday, or do we do it because we love the people that are here because they are all in Christ together and it brings us joy to be together for Him? And if so, let's ensure that this pulpit remains God-honoring no matter who is here teaching, that it's God-honoring, it's loving, it's biblical, and it's sound doctrinally. And from that, what should come from that, let's ensure that we all respond with love for each other that not only honors our Savior, but makes our neighbors around here look at it and say, I want some of that love. That should be our goal. Father God, I am so thankful for you today and I thank you for your word that you were able to give us so that we know how to honor you through the church, that we know how to honor you through the pastorate, that we know that the pastorate pours into the people, the people pour into each other. We all love each other in an orderly way that honors you, God. We're so thankful to be able to come together as a family and honor you. We ask, Lord, that you continue to richly bless us, richly bless our beautiful kids and our time together. Make it long-lasting while we're here that we're able to honor and serve you through reaching our neighbors that they would see how much love we have for each other and they would come knock on the door and say, I want some of what you have and we are able, Lord, to point directly to your son, Jesus. We ask for all of our blessings in his holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.